Can you guys hear the background here? Not anymore. We've got, we still have one of our grandchildren here, and we're surviving. <laughs> don't, don't ask me how. Do not ask me how. We're taking them home tomorrow. Um, I am more grateful than I can say. I mean, he, he, he gives the two of us life. I mean, we, we are on our last legs. And having an eight-year-old just brings life into our old age. But it also wears us out. So... <laughs> Um, anyway, he's he's still here for the last night, and so that isn't bothering you guys. You can't hear. Can you hear it in the background? Okay, okay. Any, any. Any prayer request tonight? Oh. I know. I, I, I know. Y'all are all praying for my mother-in-law already, <clears throat> but we haven't like told her that uh, you know what what the prognosis is, and she she's really really asking questions. And I at the beginning told her son, she has five boys, that you should tell her what the doctor said. I mean, yep. she needs to prepare her soul. Yep. Yep. And she, you know, and I I'm just kind of fighting with that, and I don't know how to go about it really. Well, let me ask, let me just offer this, Connie. Bless your soul. I mean, my whole forever and ever, it's that it's important for us to hear the truth, even when it's painful, and when you avoid it, you're not helping people at all. So, my and I, I hope you'll. If I'm overstepping boundaries, I hope you'll pardon me here. But my own mm -hmm. suggestion would be that you talk to some of her children and ask them to do that because you because of the reasons you'd give for. Right, you know that. I, I mean, I don't. I don't want to presume and you know guess your reasons, but tell them why you're concerned, and either ask them to do it, or ask them if um, if they're not comfortable if you could do it. But I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, it doesn't help us, you know, to live life by hiding the truth from us. Right, um, and, that, and that's. That was my first thought a long time ago. I said, no, you really should tell her. But yeah. they're like, no. If you tell her, she's going to lose hope, and I'm like, well. It's but a it's a test. I mean, it's a test you want to, you, God, I mean, these tests are always in front of us. I mean, the test is, right. and you hope, particularly with somebody like you, that you don't lose hope. It's, it's a time to be strengthened in your faith because you, you, you're, you may be dying. It doesn't help you to die and not prepare for it. Um, that's that's one of those. I just hate the modern world on this. It's one of those things you turn over to people, and if they've got the support of somebody like you, you say, "This is a time for us to grow in faith, to turn away from the world, to give it up, and turn to God." Whatever happens, those are trials of faith. The world does not do well on that. No. So, um, my my. And, yeah, and the thing is with her, like we were speaking with her this morning, and she's like, you know, I don't want to die. <laughs> you know, she's telling us that she's, she's, you know, and I'm like, but uh, it, it's just so hard. Yeah. Anyway, yep. I just like prayers for the Holy Spirit possibly to lead me yeah. <clears throat> into, you know, yeah. what we should do. Yeah, good for you. Well, I think you have a group behind you because I'm watching people nod their heads. So, yeah. Um, yeah. You're, you're not you're not alone on that. 
it's yeah, you know, everything about the modern world wants to take away pain, and it just so weakens us. You know, go back to what Dave and Kay were saying. Um, it's it's better. It I my, God, I don't get me started. It's better to live in the truth with our weaknesses than pretend we're strong in an illusion. Right. Yes. God, I mean, Christ is the truth, the way. You know, it's just mm-hmm. that's our faith, and it's it asks a lot. It draws us towards a cross. What cross is ever comfortable? Anyway, glad I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked. Any other prayers? Connie, Connie, how much time do you think she has? Um, well, about three months ago. It was three to six months. So, um, But the thing with her, it, it's so odd because when you talk to her, I mean, she's just like the, the mother-in-law I met 30-something years ago. <clears throat> so her brain, everything is there. I mean, it, it's just her body, of course, that is, you know, she's skin and bones. And um, she's so tired of doing the chemotherapy, but she, you know, she wants to keep on because she's thinking that, you know, eventually the cancer will, will go away. But, <clears throat> I mean, it would be a miracle if it did. This well, is the, the, only, the only thing that would I would have in mind is, you know, as, as her end approaches and I hate to say it that way because we're all meeting an end we just don't know where as her end approaches it we've got to say something to give her time to come to reality of her spiritual life yes we cannot hide that and then regret it that we didn't address it before the time and let it expire so many of us procrastinate in so many things that is, it's the easy way out. And like Dr. Alexander was saying just a minute ago, society doesn't want us to feel any pain. Well, that's the problem with our society and our whole mindset. Right. Nobody commits sin. That's propaganda. So we we've got we you have to give her the opportunity. Yeah. If you have, I mean, you can't. You can push it off a little bit, but if you have any idea of how many days, short days she's got left, you've got to bring her to the reality so that she can reconcile herself spiritually. Right. Yeah. I, mean, I, 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 just, I, just, I just know you wouldn't let that pass by, but... Oh, no, no. I've already called a priest. I already had a priest to give her her last rice, but she... she... She, t- she told him no. I-, I called and we set it up and she the priest called her and she's like, uh, no, I don't need you right now. I'll call you. <laughs> you know, it's really, it's just, I, I, we've got to get to a class here, but I'm, I'm no. glad for, you know, the, the strange thing about this is, I mean, I, I think about this a lot and I know Suzanne and I talk about this because we're, we've reached that age where we know one of us won't be there one day. I mean, um, she's either going to be alone without me and, or I'm going to be alone without her. That day's approaching. And the irony is we don't know. I mean, I'm so aware that I might not be here tomorrow. It just, I mean, we don't know. We don't know. You know, I mean, all the, all the, the talks that Christ gave about be ready. You don't know when, you know, he's coming the day. Two on the roof, two on the, I mean, it, it, it doesn't help us to bury that, um, it, it would be better to be honest in some comforting, you know, comforting way. We don't know, so I, it doesn't it doesn't help to. And what the irony is, 
Suzanne had an had an aunt years ago that was like a mother to her, and she would visit her. And her aunt went through a period where she she was ready to die and actually wanted to die. I mean, she Suzanne would would say prayers. We, we say prayers through the day in our life, and and her aunt never did. But when Suzanne was there, she'd say prayers prayers with her. And she her aunt made it really clear that she was ready to die, and and she wanted to die. And Suzanne said, "It's not up to you." And we we have there's one of the parishioners at St. Francis has gone through an awful stretch of time here. She's fallen and injured herself and went to the hospital and she turned up positive with the virus and you know just complications. But she came through it and and she and she said, "I've got my ticket. I'm ready." I mean, she was ready to leave the world and I think I think wanted to. And then su- suddenly she recovered from the virus. And now she's ready to live again. <laughs> it's 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 not up to us. I mean, C.S. Lewis has said this a number. Of, we don't know when it's going to come. When it comes, we should we should be doing everything we can to try to do what we do every day in our life. You know, just keep doing what we do because we don't know when the moment will come. So, let's start, um, Connie. I'm, Grateful again for your request for prayers. Anybody else? Melody, I've got you. Just so you know, I'm. We've already got you on our mind anyway. So, um, okay. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um. God, what to add to what's been said? Um, the cross is at the center of our faith, and it's something so many of us push off a lot of our life, and at some point it catches up with us, and we have to deal with it. And um, The great gift that you offer us that we can't find anywhere else is that in the face of our sins, um, in the face of our failures, in the prospect of death, you give us every reason to be glad and it's so hard, it's, it's so much easier to be negative, to look at all the dark things in our world. It's much harder to take a joy in suffering or a cross. And yet that's what you've offered us. And you've given us a reason to be glad when things are difficult. We can't find that anywhere else. The great sin for us is not our weaknesses or our sins. All of us have them. Um, sometimes they're overwhelming. I, I know that myself. Um, but the one thing that consoles us is um, is your mercy. Um, the great sin for us is despair. 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 From the French means not to hope. Despair. Not to hope. The great gift that you've given us is hope and a reason for being glad. So, in the midst of our struggles, strengthen all of us in a spirit of hope. Make it real and living. Um, um, Don't let any of us feel ashamed of feeling bad or sorrowful or heavy with our burdens, because sometimes those burdens are heavy. The, The Stations of the Cross, God, is there anything more agonizing? When we're in agony, the agony's real. 
Um, so help us to pick up our burdens and not pretend that the agony isn't real for any of us when it is. Um, but while we struggle, whatever the anguish is, help us to hold on. Keep alive a hope. Strengthen in us a wanting to be glad to be with you. Um, that's our great gift. Um, help all of us to do that um, and to bring it to everything we do, particularly with those we love. Um, sometimes that's hardest because um, it's our love of others that sometimes makes our burden so heavy. Let a blessing be upon all of us here in this group. Let us be strengthened, particularly for our work together. I, I hope I'm not misspeaking here. There is some kind of strength forming in this group with everybody bearing each other. Um, this is a gift to all of us. Um, help us to find a strength. We know that the ultimate source of that is the mystical body of Christ. It's everybody. So there are lots of people praying for us, even even though they don't know us. That's our body. Um, help us to take a strength in that. And be glad to hold on to a sense of humor when things are going bad. I ask a special grace for Connie's mother-in-law and her children. Give them the courage the spirit of truth to take to her. Um, trust God, trusting that the truth will help her, not defeat her, make her better, for God's sake. The way to getting better is a cross. It's not avoiding it, so um, let a blessing be upon her children to trust that <laughs> it's such a demeaning view, like, you know, like we can't stand it. They won't do it as if we're too weak. L let them trust their mother, have a better image of her, that this will be better for her, that she's strong enough to get better with this, not be worsened by it, and give Connie the grace somehow to deal with this. The courage, I mean, the fact that she even anguishes about it means she's where she should be. Give her, give her some help here. And I ask a special prayer for a blessing for Melody and her family. Um, um, <laughs> let her feel your hand of blessing upon her and um, whatever difficulties her family is enduring right now, trusting that um, to hold on to be patient that um, these trials make us better, that something good will come out of this. That was the great truth, the great truth that we learned from Boethius. <laughs> no matter how bad things are, we know, that's our faith, God is always at work trying to bring something better out of this. Can we work with him? Will we work with him? And sometimes these trials of faith are greater for some people than others. Um, Help us all hold on, each in our way, whatever it is God's asking of any one of us. And I'm saying this right now personally, I'm asking that for myself. Um, given my own struggles with my own sins, Suzanne with hers, all of ours. So let a blessing be upon the work that we're doing together, the great grace that we are to each other. We offer these prayers in your name, 
Christ our Lord. Amen. Do you have somebody else trying to get in? Um, they've been in and out. Just... <laughs> Melody, if you don't stop your crying, I'm going to dismiss you from the class because you're making me break up too. So. Stop it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I hope you know I'm kidding. It's, it's my hormones. It's, it, it, <laughs> he doesn't have that excuse. Yeah, yeah, it's not my hormones. So you can put that away right now, Melody. <laughs> I'm in tears because I love that dear heart of yours. Here's our poems for tonight. We're doing um, Hausman's and Blake. Did you all get that poem? God, I hope. Don't tell me you didn't. Don't tell me. Oh, God. If you want to click on right now, you can go to the poetry section and look at Blake and Hausman. If, if not, just listen. Okay, don't, don't worry about it because I don't want anybody fretting or scrambling right now. The two poems that I'm reading tonight are both very, very brief, and I chose them because you guys have been laboring really hard with long poems, and I thought it would be good for a break. I'm, I'm, I've been thinking about doing the Robinson poem because it it's so tender. It's, it's just very human and lighthearted and but rather than um, commit us to a longer poem I thought it would be good just to have a short poem so I'm going back to two short poems my reason for choosing these two poems is that the two of them together represent the whole of the lyric spectrum okay one of them looks back to a lost Eden and one of them looks forward to the promised land. So if you remember what Auden was doing in the Hore Canonicae, remember? He was talking about the, the one that looked back to Eden, the, the two men and the, um, the Edenic person and the Utopian person who looked forward and they are always at odds with each other because one looked at the world one way and the other looked at the world the other. So if you looked at the range of the lyrics that we've been reading for all this time together, all of them um, um, exist at some point on that spectrum. All lyrics either look back to the garden, to a perfection that we once had and long for again. Every one of us carried, this is Jung, Carl Jung. Freud didn't get close. It's just one, one, one of the indications that Freud was so often what he did. Jung understood this, that, and, and so many great poets do. All of us carry within us this longing for perfection. What Christ made clear is the cost of recovering it is a cross. We can keep longing forever, but we're going to have to suffer. Remember, that was the great theme of the Odyssey. Long-suffering Odysseus. To try to get home was not easy. It was a struggle. So, one of the poems looks back to a lost Eden. This unity that existed between Adam and Eve in their relationship with each other and with God. Everything was all right. Everything was fine. But things in the world are never fine. They're not fine. We, we're in a fall. That's our bearing. The other poem looks forward to the New Jerusalem. It's utopian. It's something not yet. We hope, we hope one day um, to, to move away from what we once had into something even better. So we move from a garden, not a city, a garden in nature, 
to the New Jerusalem, to a city that was made possible by Christ's life, by his incarnation, his death and resurrection. So all of those point us towards this, an answer to this longing that we all have. Okay, So these are the two poles. All lyrics exist somewhere between those two poles, all of them. It can be, they can be about death, they can be about love, they can be about any possible topic, but all of them will be situated on that spectrum, looking back to a lost world or forward to one not yet that we still long for, okay? So A.E. Hausman was an English poet who lived at the end of the last century, well, um, during the, I think it was the, Ed, the Edwardian period. He died in, I think, 1930, the 1930s, sometime in there. Famous English poet, um, one of the great classicists in English literature, and a poet that was loved. He, he wrote in what was called the plain style. Not, this is really interesting, not the Roman, Italian, Latinate, sort of elaborate and sometimes some people think effeminate, this Catholic style. He wrote in this pure, bare, plain style, with the, what the English tradition calls the plain style. And people loved him for it. He, he did his great work there. Robert Frost, an American poet, wrote in the plain style. So, Hausman wrote his poem, Looking Back. William Blake, who was one of the Romantic poets in the 19th century, writes about something not yet. Okay? So just keep that in mind when you hear the two poems, okay? They're, they're very, 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 very brief. But they, what they do is speak to the whole range of the lyric emotion um, that we've experienced in all the lyrics we've been reading so far. This is Hausman. Into my heart, an air that kills from yon far country blows. What are those blue remembered hills? What spires? What farms are those? That is the land of lost content. I see its shining plain, the happy highways where I went and cannot come again. He's lost it and laments it. It's a poem of lamentation. He wants to return to that world, what he calls those blue remembered hills, um, of lost content. He wants to recover it, but he knows he can't. Okay, So I'll read it one more time. So just hear that sense of a lament to recover something lost. Into my heart an air that kills from yon far country blows. What are those blue remembered hills? What spires? What farms are those? That is the land of lost content. I see its shining plain, the happy highways where I went, and cannot come again. He cannot come to them again, they're lost. Okay, that's Hausman. It's a, a poem from a collection called A Shamshire, Shropshire Land. This is from William Blake's collection. Blake wrote lots of poems um, that stand on their own, but there's two co collections that are of a special importance for him. One he called um, Songs from Experience, or Innocence, and the other he called Songs from Experience. So he lined up Innocence with Experience and wrote on the same topic. It could be a black boy, because one of them is called a black boy, a chimney sweep, or London, or it could be on countless themes, slavery in England or not, or 
but he would write a poem on that exact topic from the perspective of innocence and take the exact same thing and look at it from the perspective of experience. What experience shows us about that thing um, when we lose our innocence. Okay? So those two collections stand side by side. Songs from innocence and songs from experience. And Blake saw his poetry consciously as prophetic. Um, I'm, I'll, I'll, as a matter of fact, I'll read one of his poems next week. It's a, it's a good reminder for me to show you that he was very conscious that there was a prophetic aspect to what he was doing. This is from William Blake's Songs of Experience. A sunflower weary of time who counteth the steps of the sun seeking after that sweet golden climb where the traveler's journey is done where the youth pined away with desire and the pale virgin shrouded in snow arise from their graves and aspire where my sunflower wishes to go. So it's a longing for that golden climb where the journey is done. It's a turning away from the sorrows, the pale virgin, the graves, um, where pining away, where people die. It's a turning from those things that Hausman is talking from towards the end. Okay? So everything in nature, it's not just each person, it's a sunflower, it can be a tree, it doesn't matter what it is, everything in nature aspires towards that end. Okay? So Ian Blake, Songs of Experience. A sunflower weary of time, who counts the steps of the sun, seeking after that sweet golden climb where the traveler's journey is done, where the youth pined away with desire and the pale virgin shrouded in snow arise from their graves and aspire where my sunflower wishes to go. Say, there you have the two pulls of the lyric all that we've been doing. Um, I'm sorry if I didn't mention that in the note that I sent you because I sent it out to the other class. You can go into our poetry collection online it, it'll be there so you can get a copy of it if you want. By the way, just, just a note. A, a, I hope it's a kick in the rear for some. <laughs> if I can do that, if you guys aren't too embarrassed with me doing that. It would be good every once in a while to go into that collection of poems and just print them off and read them because they really are. You know, they're, um, it, I mean, there are millions of poems, but you've got a really good short collection of poems that are sustaining kinds of poems, so. Okay, to Dante. Um, that's not too loud. You guys can't hear the background here, can you? It's an eight-year-old, listen to an eight-year-old movie, so. Very, very briefly, I've talked about the guardians at each level. We didn't spend any time because it was important to focus on the action involving characters. I want to just take a moment to very briefly call that to your attention because it, it helps us understand the descent into hell. Now remember, one of the most important things, two important things to hold on here. One is that Dante, I mean, it goes to, I think, Connie's question last week. Um, one of the things that we've lost sight of in the modern world is that we have a nature. 
We've been created, we have a nature. The modern world doesn't believe that we have a nature, that we can do whatever we want. We can change our sex, we can dream of, you know, we can do whatever we want. We can make the world the way we want it. Dante was, I think, far more realistic. He knew that we had a nature and that there are things that we do that can undermine or even destroy our nature. He was as clear about that as a doctor is in, in diagnosing problems with a patient. A doctor will look at somebody who comes into him and says, you've got this X, Y, or Z. He'll look at the symptoms and he'll say, because you've got X, Y, or Z, this is what you need to do. He can only do that because a doctor has an understanding of our nature. He could never treat us. A good lawyer, and by the way, I think this is less and less true of lawyers today because lawyers are, I mean, they've tended historically to be unreliable people, but a good lawyer should have a sense of justice that, re that rests in reality so he can help achieve, bring justice to a case because he knows what's at stake, that justice is real, and by doing some things he can help attain justice. Um, so up until recent times, we believe pretty strongly that there is a nature to ourselves, to trees, to flowers, to animals, to everything, and that it's important for us to learn that nature to be able to respond to it, to work with it in ourselves and in nature. If we ask too much of nature, we end up damaging it. If we don't ask enough, we may not be able to help nature become what it could be. Suzanne loved plants. I mean, she is so meticulous in caring for them. She knows that if she overwaters them, it could hurt them. If she doesn't take care of them the right way, she's going to lose them. And um, we, we know that with children, that we can be overly protective. We can, you know, not be careful enough. So we're always trying to gauge our acts by some understanding we have of the nature of the thing in front of us. Um, Dante was as clear about that as anybody. Um, Shakespeare when comes to mind. So in every level when he shows a sin, he's showing us the exact nature of the sin. So he's as clear about our nature in what he does as any person who's ever lived. The contrapasso is his way of showing that the effects of what we do in committing a sin um, enclose us. Those infects take over. They create a world. So if we're too caught up with drinking or sex or drugs, whatever it is, um, that sin will put a cast on the whole world. In some sense, it, it partly blinds us. All of us are in sin. I hope you don't mind my saying that. All of us are in sin. So when Christ came to heal people and took, you know, gave sight back, it wasn't just physical sight that he was returning to people. He was restoring some sense of spiritual sight that involved faith or an act of faith so that what they were seeing suddenly opened up a world to them that had closed down. Yeah? So when he restored sight, it wasn't just a sight that would make available the physical world to them. Um, it would make available them something that could only come in through eyes of faith because when you see through faith, you're going to see things that other people don't see. So, in the Contrapasso, Dante's showing us the effects of sin. At every level, 
with each sin, the contrapuntal is different. It helps us to see what that sin does for us. That is, in a sense, he's doing what Christ did. He's helping us to recover our sight. So that by learning to see a sin, um, but like Dante, distance himself from it, he can begin to do something about it. He can begin to do penance. That's the whole work of purgatory. The whole work of purgatory is beginning to pick up our sins and do something with them. Not mope, you know, um, to be glad to pick them up. But the guardians, we've, we've, I've, I've just not given any importance, I mean, except to mention them. But I want to take a second now because what they do is make clear the nature of that descent. Okay? Because every one of them images um, a, a degree of grotesqueness, ugliness, in the descent towards the center of hell where we're going to go tonight. So, for example, at the very beginning, the ferryman who, who brought Dante from the outside of hell into it was called Charon. He's described as a man of years, ancient white hairs. He's the son of ancient night. He's an image of something standing between nothingness and existence. Because God created us. What's outside of our life? We don't know what that nothingness is. But Sharon's an image of movement from a world of life into lifelessness, sin, darkness. So he's suggesting the that first motion into something inhuman. I'm going to go very quickly over that. Minos, the guardian of the second level, the lustful. Um, he's, he, he looks more like a human being than so many others because lust is resembles love in so many ways. Um, um, Cerebus in, in Canto 7, the three-headed dog, remember guarding gluttony, Three heads was appropriate because you can't get enough food. You just keep wanting to eat. So three throats was almost not enough for him. Pluto in Roman mythology was the god of the dead. Um, he was no th known as the wealth giver um, because he identified himself with wealth. Remember, he was inflated. Um, Dante threw some dirt at him and he wanted to gobble it. Um, Phlegius, the ferryman across the river Styx, was the son of Ares, Mars, because when we cross the Styx, remember we're entering the, the, the level of the violence, the whole section of the violence, where sins are more aggressive. In the upper level, sins, the sins are sins of incontinence. They're sins of weakness. All human beings have them. None of us can escape them. But some people are far more aggressive, far more deliberate in their sins. So when we cross that river, we're entering into sins that are more aggressive, more openly violent. Um, Medusa and the Furies, they're images of the horrors of sin itself. To look on sin, remember, Virgil takes Dante and turns him around. He doesn't even want him looking at Medusa. To look on evil directly is to be overwhelmed on it. You know, I want to take a minute with this because it's a little bit scary. I think we, as human beings, we're so capable. We are, our gifts make us so capable. So we think we can, you know, outdo anybody. We, I, I, we're actually having a talk with our grandson today about um, taming your dragon because 
we've got a movie here for kids called. I will have nothing to do with that. I mean, I, you guys may laugh at me. Because one of my concerns is there's too much going on in the modern world that wants to make evil to downplay it. The dragon is an image of Satan. He's at wings, fire, going here, here, greed to destroy. He is the literary image of Satan. He wants to destroy greed. If you've read the, if you know the um, the Tolkien trilogy, you know that Smaug hoards that, you know, all that wealth. Um, so when, so we were asking him, you know, do you think you can tame Satan? And you know that you have to be careful because Satan can outmaneuver any of us. Satan was a greater creature than any of us. So the danger for us as humans so often is we think we can outface anybody. I, I don't want to go head to head with Satan. I do not want to do that. It terrifies me. The, the, the thought undoes me. And I, I don't think I'm particularly cowardly, you know. I mean, I've done faced a lot of things. I, I do not want to face him. The Medusa is an image of evil. Look on evil itself is to be overwhelmed with despair, to be turned into stone. Um, so we're getting closer and closer to the real nature of evil itself. When we get to the Minotaur, the Minotaur is an image of something human and bullish. We're looking at, um, remember when we did Virgil, if, if those of you remember when we got to the sixth book, when Aeneas arrives at Italy, the, the story of the Minotaur with Daedalus is on the cave. Remember, the Minotaur was the bull, and um, um, Minos's wife fell in love with the bull, became so infatuated with it, she wanted to make love with it. And, um, and the, the offspring of that is this bullish creature. It, it shows what happens when um, human lusts be, be, um, gain too much power so that a human being in a sense, is turned into a beast. If that if that seems too mythical, imagine a man raping a woman, or even imagine because it's happening more and more today. Imagine a woman raping a boy, you know, sexually imposing herself on a boy. I I, I mean, they're to all appearances they're human beings. The man raping the woman, the woman raping a boy. To all appearances they're human beings, but inwardly something bestial has so got the upper hand that they're committing that kind of violence. So as we go th um, through each one of the levels, we're, watched, we're being presented with an image that actually images the nature of that sin itself. And you know that when we get to the end, um, the, the guardians are demons, they're actual angels. And we get to the very depths where we're going tonight, there are these giants. All these ancient mythical giants. And the reasons for that is because they're images of intellectual pride. But it's a pride that's frozen. It's so caught in itself that it's frozen itself. It's motionless. That's the great irony. There's all this pride in these great giants. And they're frozen. They're immobile. They can't move. So what we're watching, and it's interesting, I remember Father James and I had to talk about this once because the traditional image of hell is fire. Dante's altered that, what he's showing, and there's actually evidence um, in scripture and in the tradition of evidence showing that 
hell is like a state of ice because a person becomes frozen, paralyzed in that act. It's chilling. It, it immobilizes. It, it keeps a person from moving. It, it's a complete arrest in a chill. So um, when we get to the center of hell, the guardians are finally these ancient giants who are images of the, the pride that man's capable of when it, um, when it overcomes him. Okay, let me, what I'd like to do now is, is um, quickly go pick up where we left off before with um, Ulysses and Diomedes. But let me stop here. Any questions or comments about the guardians and the descent and their importance? Um, I have a question. It's Melody. <clears throat> um, for instance, the giant, the titan. I mean, why did Dante feel like he needed to use a mythical character or like you talked about the Guardians? Some of them are pulled from mythical, and I and I understand their representations, but I mean, to me, it, it's almost like, you know, God is real, and then you go to these mythical characters, and you, you kind of pull back and think, well, this is all just pretend, and then you hop back into as realistic as he writes, maybe there's some truth to it. So it, it kind of surprises me that he goes back and forth so yeah. easily from mythical to regular people, actual yeah. historical people. Yeah, yeah, it's a good question, Melody. Um, I, I mean, let me take this stab at it. Um, those of you who are sports, I'm trying to find analogies or parallels. Those of you who are sports fans, this is probably before your, a little bit before your time, but, um, and I, I've never been a great football fan, but Susanna and I grew up in the Bay Area, so we were around the San Francisco Giants and the San Francisco 49ers, and, and there was a period when, um, Joe Montana and Steve Young were the two quarterbacks of the 49ers when the 49ers were almost a dynasty. And there was a period when when Joe Montana was just unstoppable and and if any I lots of you will recall pick your uh, Michael Jordan in basketball. The the word to describe what those men did in those games when everything was on the line was it's as if they got in a zone. You know, that's the, the sports term. Because it's almost as if they, they could not fail. It was almost as if something godlike, because they weren't like other players. They did something all the other great quarterbacks could not do. Or, or somebody like Jordan, a guard, or a, you know, two or three men on a basketball team, could not do. And these people would do these things that left everybody in amazement and left them and left them with the status of icons, American icons, idols. In fact, those are the words. It's, it's as if American audience would elevate them to the status of God. It's like the Jews in the desert elevating these things, you know, and, and almost worshiping them. St. Augustine would have called it a civil religion, that human beings, when they, when they deny God, will create their own idols. They'll, they'll turn gangsters into idols, you know, that these heroes... So we, we tend to mythify a lot. 
So you get people doing great things on one, you know, some men will or women will earn the Medal of Honor. They will do extraordinary things in war. And properly they're honored. At the other extreme, there are human beings who do these things that are almost demonic. You you hear about them and they're so grotesque, the dismembering. I mean, you, you know, you some of this stuff is caught in on on camera, you know, in some of the militant um things going on with terrorists beheading and mutilating bodies and it's so close to what we're seeing at the bottom of the hell that it's you know it's almost hard to believe that human beings would do this but they do and and they do those for political reasons i'm not even thinking about them right now i'm thinking about what what people today would call psychopaths who who commit these horrific kinds of crimes and there's no human language that is adequate to describe them. Psychologists will call them, you know, psychotic. Dante would say there's something demonic. But modern psychologists are not going to believe in demons. You know, they're, they're, going, to, they're going to use psychology to explain. But the idea that there's something demonic in them, they would not say. So part of my answer, Melody, is that we live in a world... And I'm, I'm being very, very serious about this. You know me, I think, by now. Flannery O'Connor has written short stories. She's a Catholic writer, and one of them, I think it's a good man, is hard to find. The, the action takes us to the center of a museum, and at the center of the museum is this little glass case, and the whole action is towards this glass case. And inside the glass case is a pygmy, and it's an image of modern man. Because according to a scientific view, he's been reduced to this something between an ape and... We live in an age which has so reduced man, shrunken him to this thing, this object, this product of evolutionary forces, say, so that anything mythic to us is a fabrication, a lie, and anything at the other extreme is, um, what, what's the word I use? Pathological, you know, that but the demonic or the divine? If you look at Freud, Freud has a very active sense of the unconscious. I don't want to go there because I think he's mistaken in lots of ways. Freud had no, no concept of a spiritual unconscious. The idea that the divine could enter into our lives that went in, or the demonic? So we, we, we live in an age in which we've tended to reduce the human person narrowly, shrunken him, so that anything like that seems to us unreal. And yet, so, you know, I, I'm sure all of you are aware of this. I mean, I, I don't know that I've made it explicit, but I am now. The Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, now the Divine Comedy. We're looking at works in which that's not happening. These are all, they predate a scientific worldview of things, so that we're looking at aspects of our human nature that are explained very differently from the way the modern scientific mind would explain them. So... I think it's Dante's way of showing that there are these, there, to put it is the best way that I can, the, the human being, according to St. Thomas, was the noblest thing in creation. Thomas would say that the human soul, and I believe him, the human you know, in the, in the um, rosary, I, can, I think it's one of the glorious mysteries that describes Mary as what, standing on the moon or the moon beneath her with 12 stars. It's an image of Mary set against the universe. I mean, if you were listening to the language, you'd say, holy cow, either the guy's got it screwed up 
or we're missing something about human nature. St. Thomas would say the human soul is greater than the entire material universe. The material universe is worth, I mean, it's going to go away. The human soul won't. So there are these dimensions to the human soul in both directions, moving towards the divine, doing extraordinary. Let's say, take say, take St. Paul. He just did extraordinary things. Shipwrecks, prisonment, scourging, you know. Um, so there are these mythic dimensions that human beings are capable of doing things that you can't explain in ordinary terms, and they're also capable of doing horrific, demonic kinds of things. And Dante's just being faithful, and it's and if I can put it the best way, it's it's his way of showing there's this great dignity to the human person because he's created in the image of God. So when he's really good, there's something extraordinary about him. When he's really bad, he's really bad. So this imagery in some sense you can't do justice to it without these mythic images if that answers your question any anybody else about such a good question i didn't even know that i had that in me until you asked the question <laughs> see what you I get disagree with everything you said it also occurred to me when you were giving your explanation when you talked about Joe Montana, that meant something to me. It would mean nothing to my grandson. Right, right. Educated people, and at that time some were, some were not, but educated, literate people could understand and relate those mythological creatures. They were archetypes for them. Yeah. Yeah, and I just, yeah, I, and I don't want to get started. I just think our world is losing... The, the human person is becoming more and more shrunken, more and more dehumanized, in our, I believe, in our world. It, it just saddens me. Um, you guys are a great lift to me because, you know, we have a, a place in which we can try to recover some sense of who we are as humans that, that's being lost today. So... Okay, um, let's, let's go to Dante. When we, when we, when we ended last week, we we had been talking about um, um, Ulysses and Diomedes. Do you remember um, Ulysses was counseling the Greeks? I I thought our discussion was really, I thought it was really fine. Um, on page one, one forty-three, somewhere in there. Let me if we can just go there for a minute. Yeah, on 144, 145, you remember that Diomedes, or I mean Ulysses, was exhorting the Greeks to um, ask more of themselves, to not be bound by limits, so they wouldn't be confined. They had just passed the straits, you know, the, the Pillar of Hercules. So they're going out into an ocean that's unexplored. It, it would be a little bit like us saying, we're going to go to the moon or going to go to Mars. And everybody would say, oh, impossible. And yet we're going beyond boundaries. We're, we're trying to do something that's not been done. And he's encouraging his men and saying, um, there are these great things still reserved for us. Do not deny yourselves experience of what there is beyond 
behind the sun in the world that they all unpeopled. Consider what you came from. You are Greeks. You were not born to live like mindless brutes, but to follow paths of excellence and knowledge. And then you remember, they, they, they suddenly find themselves approaching this mountain and um, move towards it, and suddenly um, um, the, 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 the seas churn and the winds come up. When there appeared a mountain shape darkened by distance, the rose to endless heights, I had never seen another mountain like it. Our celebration soon turned into grief. From the new land there arose a whirling wind and beat against the forepart of the ship and whirled us around three times. It's interesting, three times. I mean, the, the, immediately, the, the, three de the three days in Herring Hill, um, three times in Trini Waters, the fourth blast raised the stern up high and sent the bow down deep as pleased another's will. And I asked you to hold on to that term because we're going to meet it in purgatory, as pleased another's will. That is, Ulysses is trying to attain a perfection that human beings cannot attain on their own. It's an expression of a hubris. He's attempting to do what Dante did at the beginning. That's why that mountain is so important. So we're back in that mountain. Remember, I've read the passages then. Dante got beaten back. He couldn't do it. Ulysses, in his pride, was trying to do something man is incapable of doing. And if I can put this sort of darkly, if, if Satan is real, if what we read in Scripture is real, then it's as if we're, we're acting as if we can get around him. That, you know, the modern, the modern mind prides itself on thinking it doesn't need God, it can, it can save it, he, the modern man can save himself, he can attain bliss on his own, um, and the, the, the irony is that the evidence is always that it just doesn't happen that way, that whenever we think we can do that, we always find ourselves in a mess. So, um, it, 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 Ulysses is an image of, of that, and remember at that point we're at the level of the false counseling, that, that people are encouraging others to do something they shouldn't do. That's where we were, okay? Okay, so let me let me pick up there. I want to go on because what we're what we're going to look at tonight, um, um, it is going to get darker and darker. Dante goes on, and on the page one forty seven, he comes to another soul. He says, he's going from soul to soul. And now I beg you to tell us who you are. Grant me my wishes. Yours was granted you, so that your fame may hold its own on earth. Dante keeps telling people he will take back their stories, as if he's appealing to their vanity. And when the fire in its own way had roared a, um, a while, the flame sharp tip began to sway to and fro, then released a blow of words. So words come out of this flame. If I thought that I were speaking to a soul who someday might return to see the world, most certainly this flame would cease to flicker, but since no one, if I've heard the truth, ever returns alive from this deep pit, with no fear of dishonor, I'll answer. So he's going to give himself away. By the way, I, I don't know that we'll get there, but it's, it's a poem I've read in, at Francis. This is the, the um, epigram, the rubric, the headnote for T.S. Eliot's famous poem, The Love Song of Janford Prufrock. He, he presents as the head note to that poem, this passage, because 
the love song of Prufrock is about a man who's going on this um, assassination with a woman. He's going to meet this woman or these women, and he thinks he's in his private world. So what we will learn, I'm going to, we're going to do this poem sometime. What we're going to learn, and and T.S. the love song of Jeff and Prufrock is is looked at as one of the watershed moments, the one of the indications of modernity we've entered. It. That poem is that important for the modern world. The headnote to that poem is this passage from Dante. What we learn is this, that um, Guido is here because of what he did with Pope um, Boniface going over to 149. Boniface at the bottom of 148 is, is described as engaging in battles with Catholics when he should have been fighting the Muslims who were conquering territories, I mean actively, very actively at that time. At the bottom of 148, and then the prince of the new Pharisees chose to wage wars upon the Lateran instead of fighting Saracens or Jews. That is, um, um, the Pope engaged in conflicts with Catholics instead of with the enemies of Catholicism. The prince of the new Pharisees, so he's calling the Pope a Pharisee. Um, if anybody thinks that Catholics, I mean, what distinguishes Catholics is that blind obedience, that they just do whatever they're told. Take a look at Dante. I mean, it, nobody has nobody condemned more popes than Dante. The hell is full of popes, and you already know that in priests, so He's not holding back anywhere. For all of his enemies were Christian souls, none among the ones who conquered Acre, the, because the Muslims did, none a traitor in the Sultan's kingdom. His lofty papal seat, his sacred vows, were no concern to him, nor was the cord I wore. As Constantine once had Silvestro brought from Mount Soracte to cure his leprosy, so this one sought me out as his physician. So the Pope sought out the advice of Guido to cure his burning fever caused by pride. He asked me to advise him. I was silent, for his words were drunken. Then he spoke again. Fear not, I tell you, the sin you will commit is forgiven. Now you will teach me how I can level Palestrina to the ground. He wants to defeat this Catholic family that's been opposing him. Mine is the power, as you cannot deny, to lock and unlock heaven. Two keys I have, those keys my predecessors did not cherish. So the Pope bribes him and says, don't worry about sinning, I forgive you before the sin. 150. Um, St. Francis came to get me when I died, but one of the black cherubim cried out, don't touch him, don't cheat me of what, I'm, what is mine. So the dark satanic forces come to get him and take him to hell, even though he committed himself to a life in the priesthood as a way of reforming his life. He must come down to join my other servants for the false counsel he gave. From then to now, I've been ready at his hair, because one cannot be absolved unless repentant, nor can one both repent and will a change at once. The one is counseled by the other. O wretched me, how I shook when he took me, saying, Perhaps you never stopped to think that I might be somewhat of a logician. Now, in the earlier passages that I didn't read, he had been in, involved in a life of cunning, but he reached a point in his life where he wanted to reform his life, so he became a, a friar. 
and he was religious. And then he has this scene, this engagement with the Pope where the Pope asks him for his counsel and pardons him before he gives it. Now what's wrong here? Because on the surface it doesn't seem like such a grave sin. What's the wrong? Why is it so serious? It's the sin of presumption. Connie, flesh it out, can you? Well, he's, he's, the, the Pope was telling him that, you know, before, don't worry about it, I have the keys to the kingdom of heaven, whatever sins I forgive were forgiven. But, but the friar should have known that that's not how that works. I mean, you have to repent before you, your sins can be forgiven, number one. Yeah. And it's just, um, it just sounds totally presumptive, for sure. Yeah. When cannot be absolved unless repentant, when c nor can one both repent and will a thing. That is the whole purpose of going to confession, you know, in the shame that we feel is to say, I'm sorry and mean it, you know, and make an act of contrition and, you know, go on, struggle to do better. Sorry, Doc, what? And I don't will it ever again. Yeah, even if we keep failing, we, we're struggling to not. Um, what are the two keys? What's the significance or power? Because the, the two of them are going to play a serious role in what we encounter in the Purgatorio. Those are the keys Christ gave Peter. What are they? I mean, one of them is one of them is clearly defined here. The other one is left unclear, but it will it will get clearer later. Can what's to bind and unbind? Me, explain that, Connie. What does what does that mean? Um, to bind uh, the sins and to unbind. I guess to forgive or not to forgive. <laughs> Basically, the, the the Pope, you know, or the any priest, I guess that can, that has confession, they have the power to bind to forgive a sin or to not forgive a sin. Right. Right. By the way, I just I I um, I, I you know I don't want to I don't want to let the literary quality of this keep us from looking at these things a little bit more closely because they're so important. I hope everybody's appreciating this. When when Christ gave the keys to Peter, he was giving Peter an authority only God had before that. I hope that's clear. Remember when Christ when they lowered the guy into the room and Christ said which is easier to heal a man or forgive him and the Jews were outraged because only God for forgive for for him to claim to do that meant that he was claiming to be God that made them even angrier at Christ because of the pr presumption um, they didn't think any man could be God I mean that was the great problem is everybody appreciating that so for for Christ to give Peter those keys was to give him an extraordinary power. Now, why would Christ give a human being that power? If the church is going to stand in the world, if Christ is the founder, and he is the founder of the church, and he puts it in human hands, and we know that humans are going to be fallible, human beings make mistakes all the time. We've had bad popes forever. Bad popes are not going to stop. 
you know, we're, we're going to, the church is going to continue to have bad pubs. But does, that will never make the church fallible because its founder is Christ. He gave that power to the church because for the church to survive, it was going to have to deal with evil. I mean, genuine evil. How could it do that without having the help of God? So, um, to give Peter those keys was to give him an authority that he shared with God. It meant the Pope would have to use that authority wisely. Is that what Boniface is doing here with Guido? I mean, I hope everybody see it's such an abuse of power. Um, what he's doing is, is um, trading his power. And remember we talked about Simony and Beartree, that Simony was um, selling church offices and Beartree was public offices. This is worse. Um, so the, the, false, the false counseling that we're looking at here is really heinous um, because it involved the two keys. So one of the keys is to forgive or not forgive. It's a heavy burden of the church. Um, the second one, I'm going to wait on, unless anybody's got a quick answer to what that second key is, because we're going to counter it later. The second key should be the key to heaven. Well, the, that isn't the traditional understanding. But the, actually, David, the first key does that, because when you, when, you, uh, when you bind somebody or unbinding them, you're either opening the doors to heaven or closing them. You know. Well, I think the symbolism of the keys comes from the keys in, form, in former ages. The king had the keys and he gave the keys to someone he trusted when he was away. So right. when he was away, in this case, God is giving the keys to the Pope to do what he would do here in person. Right. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, I think the... Um, the, but the key to forgive or not forgive is the key of opening the door to heaven or not. Let me wait on the second key bec um, because it's going to be important. Michael, it's good to see you again. You, you know you get marked down for coming in late, just so you know that. <laughs> it's good to see you. Genuinely, I'm really glad you're here. Glad you're here. No, I, I didn't just arrive. I've been here since uh, 740. Oh, oh, sorry. Sorry. So ten demerits. I wanna I wanna just um, in the next canto Dante shows the the sowers of discord, the ones whose thinking creates divisions and schisms between people. It's here we see um, 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 Muhammad and others like that but I want to turn to the end because I really want to get to the I'm going to get to the end of tonight the one I want you to see when Dante looks at um, uh, Muhammad and some of the other sinners there he comes across a guy at the end um, who is Bertram um, de Born on page 155 he says I saw it I'm not sure and it's um, because remember here because we're in the level of, or at the level of schismatics. We're meeting people who are dismembered, whose bodies are cut open and entrails pouring out and limbs chopped off. It, it's just a ghastly image of discord. Their, their bodies are divided against themselves. They're, they're figures of mutilation. Um, 
I saw it, I'm sure, and I seem to see it still, a body with no head that moved along, moving no differently from all the rest. 156, he held his severed head up by its hair, swinging it in one hand, just like a lantern, and as it looked at us, it said, alas, so he's holding up a head separated from his body, and the head is speaking to him. <laughs> this, this is wonderful. <clears throat> I hope you're all enjoying this. I mean, you know, I mean, don't forget what I said. Dante called this the Divine Comedy because it is it is really funny. If you're standing outside of it the way we are, we're be <coughs> we're being helped to look at sins and see how ridiculous they are. I think it's partly a way of helping us to laugh at ourselves. You know that this is what we do. You know, be aware of it, and because remember, we're all going to purgatory. This is where we're going, so hold on to that. Hell doesn't stop here. We're going out of this and taking what we've learned. So the, the action won't be completed until we're in purgatory in heaven. His own self, he made himself a light, and they were two in one and one in two. How could this be? He who ordained it knows. It spoke. Now see the monstrous punishment, you there still breathing, looking at the dead. See if you find suffering to equal mine. And that you may report it on, on me up there. Know that I am Bertram de Bourne, the one who evilly encouraged the young king, father and son, I said, against each other, Akitafel, with his wicked instigations. Do not do more with Ab did not do more with Absalom and David. Because I cut the bonds of those so joined, I bear my head cut off from its life source, which is back there, alas, within its trunk. In me you see the perfect contrapasso. Deborn um, gave advice to the young, it was Prince Heavy, Henry, or I mean Henry against his father, Henry II, which divided the two. Why is this, why does he call this the perfect contrapasso? Why is it perfect? In, in one sense, it, people who read the Commedia remember this because it seems like the perfect contrapasso. Why is it? Why does it seem that way? Does it deserve that description? Is it the perfect contrapasso? <clears throat> Nobody's going to take this on? Melody, why are you... I was waiting. Okay, um, okay so when you create a divide between a father or son and son or a mother and child that's I mean that's almost impossible so the retribution that he deserved was to have something so vital like his head cut from his body because severing the relationship between a parent and child is that dramatic yeah yeah I'm going to emphasize this a little bit differently and more. Um, and we've lost the sense of it in the modern world. Remember that the line of a family went through the father, not the mother. The father was the active in the sense that a woman could only get pregnant if she were inseminated. Um, that she receives something. So the will of the man is... And the line... Remember that God is the father. The line through Israel. He named his people Israel. So the line of the father has been essential in, throughout history. 
it's 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 being denigrated in in the modern world. It's being done away with, but it's been essential forever. Um, Christ came through the line of the Father, Abraham, Isaac, David, you know, all the way. That was important. Um, the Father was seen as the head of a family. He was um, in the image of Christ. His headship um, was contingent on how well he served the family. The modern world has so screwed that up. But so to take away, to divide the father from his son is not only to divide a father from his child, but to sever that line so that posterity is cut off. Um, so it's not a small, it's not a small sin at all. Um, I'm going to do something now because I, we're, um, I want to get to the end. In the, in the next level of the falsifiers, we see four different kinds of falsifications. I, 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 if we had more time, I'd like to go into them, but I really want to give some time to the ending tonight. Um, in each one of the falsifiers, we see four different kinds of falsifications of, of metal. So um, the, the sinner practiced alchemy and claimed to be able to, pro um, to produce metals that had magic effects. Um, he, those sinners are caught with leprosy, and if you remember, God, the descriptions of our are so ugly. Um, on page one fifty-eight, just to give you, you know, to make it concrete. Imagine all the sick in the hospitals of um, Marima, Valdichkiana, um, and Sardinia between the months of July and September. Crammed all together, rotting in one ditch. Such was the misery here, and such a stench was pouring out as come from flesh to cane. Still keeping to our left, we made our way down the long bridge into the final bank, and now my sight was clear enough to find the bottom where the High Lord's mis um, ministress, justice infallible, meets out her punishment to falsify her she regrets on earth. I doubt if all those dying in um, Algina when the air was blowing sick with pestilence and the animals down to the smallest worm all perished. The, 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 the bodies are festering into each other, um, melting into each other. Um, the flesh is smelly, 159. The way those two applied their nails and dug and dug into their flesh, crazy to ease the itching that can never find relief. Um, they work their nails down, scraping off the scabs the way one works a knife to scale a bean. It goes on and on like that. These are the falsifiers, and I, I'm, it's going to raise a question that I want to put to you in a second, but, but just to, to quickly cover this. Cappuccino uh, falsified by dealing with metals. Another sinner, um, a woman, um, falsified herself by impersonating somebody and went to sleep with her father so she could sleep with him. Um, another one made um, counterfeit money, falsified a coin, so the money that was being used um, in the town was false. And the last one that I just want to touch on quickly because you'll know him, Mira, the woman on page 164, and he said to me, that is the ancient shade of Mira, the deprived one who became against love's law, too much her father's friend, 
She loved her father so much that she pretended to be somebody else to go to bed with him. The last one is Sinon. If you remember from the Aeneid, he was the one who impersonated or told the story to the Trojans to make it possible for them to take the horse into the city. And you remember then the Greeks came out and destroyed the city. So he used false words. And it was because of his false words that Troy was destroyed. So we get four different kinds of falsifications. Metal, impersonating a person, coins, and words themselves. Now, why, why would this be so low in hell? It's a betrayal of country. It's a betrayal of home. He was a, a, a citizen of Troy. Sinon was, yeah. You could say the same of counterfeiting coin, too, that it falsified a whole, um, you know, a whole people. Um, I think what we're, we're finding as we get deeper into hell are those sins that that aren't confined to just pairs or individuals remember when we were at the level of the um, incontinent the sinners tended to be somewhat isolated and alone not always but often and they were um, less pervasive but the deeper we go into hell um, the more we're finding sins that cause the ruin of a society. So what we're watching right now is not just individuals, we're watching a world, a social um, a social world, an entity, a city in the in the process of decay, of disintegration. We're seeing so picture Florence on the surface flourishing economically in trade, doing all this stuff. But underneath the surface, it's morally in decay. It's disintegrating. And all of these images of bodies merging and dismemberment are all the things that are hidden underneath the surface of the city that's in the process of decaying, of death. Take a look. To, I mean, I hate to do this. I, Father Flynn loves this stuff. I mean, you know, he'll talk about... Greece and Rome and then Babylon and all these cities coming into existence and then disintegrating, disappearing. He, he makes a point of that. If you take a look at America in its beginnings and compare America 200 years ago to America today, can we say that America is the vital country it was in our founding? Are we the same healthy, morally strong country that we were 200 years ago? Um, he, he, I just want to touch on this on page 167 at the end of 30. He, he, he presents this scene between um, Adam and Sinon. Adam is bloated with water and Sinon is um, bloated with words, if I could put it that way. So we're getting these images of stomach and rotting bodies 
in 31 we enter the deepest pit of hell where all the giants are Nimrod and um, Faltes and Tine and, um, and when we get to 32 um, in the lowest pit he happens to accidentally kick one of the sinners on page 176 sorry I'm trying to rush now because I really want to get to the final scene tonight so we can get out of hell um, page 176 while we were getting closer to the center of the universe where all weights must converge and I was so sin weighs us down it's only by the grace of Christ, only by some divine help that we can lift ourselves because the weight of sin is too heavy. So this whole descent is like a, a, a weight getting heavier and heavier and more decayed as we approach the center. I was shivering in the eternal chill by fate or chance or willfully perhaps, I do not know, but stepping among the heads, my foot kicked hard against one of those faces. Weeping, he screamed, why are you kicking me? You have not come to take revenge on me for Monteperte, have you? Why bother me? And I, my master, please wait here for me. Let me clear this up. Now, rem remember, there, there are several stages to the punishment here. In the early stages in the ice, the sinners' heads are bowed down. So their tears get some relief. The deeper they go, the more their heads are turned back, the more the tears form into ice and choke up. So the punishment is stuffed and made more severe. So at every point, Dante's showing us degrees of sins and differences between them. Here, he's just stepped on a head accidentally, and he says on 177, Who are you insulting other people? And you, who are you who march through Antonora kicking other people in the faces? No living man could kick his heart. Because remember, these are all shades. This comically, Dante's got this body. I'm a living man, and it might serve you well if you seek fame for me to put your name down in my notes. And he said, that's the last thing I would want. That's not the way to flatter these lowlands. Here he is caught in his sin. I mean, that's the mode to flatter. Um, the truth is the last thing he wants. At that, I grabbed him by his hair and back and said, you better tell me who you are, or else I'll not leave one hair on your head. And he to me, go on and strip me bald and pound and stamp my head a thousand times. You'll never hear my name. He refuses. I had my fingers twisted in his hair and already I'd pulled out more than one fistful while he yelped like a cur with eyes shut tight. When someone else yelled, what's the matter, um, Boca? It's bad enough to hear your shivering teeth. Now you bark. What's wrong? He goes, what's wrong with you? That's from another soul. Now, hold on to this this image just for a second. Now he's going to meet, as he moves away, he's going to meet um, um, Friar Burrito, 184. I'm going to go back in a minute to the Ugolino episode, but I want to go forward for a minute. He comes across Friar Alberigio on 184, who says, I'm Friar Alberigio, I'm he who offered fruit from the evil orchard, the dates are served me for the figs I gave. Oh, then I said, are you already dead? And he said to me, just how my body is in the world above, I have no way of knowing. What we learn here is Frau Berigio, um, betrayed 
relatives, he invited them for dinner, for a meal, and killed them. The sin was so heinous it, involved, heinous, it involved such a betrayal of an intimacy that immediately a demon took hold of his body. That you may more willingly scrape off the cluster of glass tears, let me tell you, whenever a soul betrays the way I did, a demon takes possession of the body, controlling its maneuvers from them. So we know that a priest, a friar, is moving about the world, inhabited by a demon. So Dante is saying... Be careful of priests. <laughs> be careful of priests. I remember Flannery O'Connor once said, be careful of priests, it's, what did she call it? Um, wolves in sheep clothing. That sometimes, and think about the, you know, the, the corruption of the church with pedophilia. And, I mean, just truth, really truthfully, for a moment, let's get real. You know, Dante's saying, be careful. Anyway, he says at the end, um, on page 185, um, the ditch that the Malbrancha watch above, he said, the ditch of clinging, boiling pitch had not yet caught the soul of uh, Michael Zanchi when Branca left the devil in his body to take his place. So did his close kinsman, his accomplice in this act of treachery. But now at last give me the hand you promised. Open my eyes. I did not open them. To be mean to him was a generous reward. Remember, he had, he had promised to Baca that he would... Um, he would relieve him. So he made a promise. Um, and then he pulled hair out of his head to force him to name himself, and he didn't. Another guy gave him away. And now he says, but now at last give me the hand you promised. Open my eyes. I did not open this. To be mean to him was a generous reward. So he's just met Baca. He's gone on to Frau Grigio. We know that demons can inhabit bodies, and in this case it's a priest. I want to pause just for a second here before we look at the Ugolino episode. Um, lots of people at this point, lots of modern critics, look at Dante at, at, because they'll make this comparison all along. They'll say that Dante himself exhibits the very sin he's experiencing on that level. It could be lust, it can be anger, it can be whatever it is. Here, he's just made a promise to this man. He went back on it and moreover tore his head, and now he says... To be mean to him was a generous reward. So this whole hair melody, this whole action that began with his feeling sorry for Francesca is ending with him walking on this guy, kicking him, pulling his hair, making a promise, and then going back on his promise. And lots of modern critics will say he's no better than the people you know, he's, he's encountering. So how are we to look at this episode? So lots of people say what he's doing is just revealing those same sins in himself. Is that's what's happening here? Karen, what do you well, he's learned that they won't change, and there's no pity in hell. What do you do with the line, to be mean to him was a generous reward? It's actually um, as good as it's going to get. Was that meanness? Yeah. Go ahead, anybody else? Humility. 
Okay, I'm looking at what he said. Dante said, if this is what you want, tell me your name. And if I do not help you, may I be forced to drop beneath this ice? Well, he does drop beneath the ice because then he crawls down Satan's legs to get back up to purgatory. So he didn't really, he, he didn't really lie to him. Um, he gave him his just desserts, but he didn't really lie because that's exactly what he did. Anybody else? But let's take up this issue of pity just for a second, because it's a really—I think it's a really crucial one for Dante. What's wrong? What would be wrong with pitying Baca at this point? And would it would it be right to add to his punishments? Let's take both both options. What what is Dante showing us here? Would it be appropriate to pity him? Melody, why? It's not appropriate to pity him because he didn't have any pity on the people that, the lives that he destroyed. And he's taken, he's taken no responsibility for his actions or else he'd be in purgatory. So he's just a bad guy. So you can't pity him. He made his choice and he's living it. But I do have a problem saying, you know, it's okay to be mean to him because he doesn't deserve, um, I don't, he doesn't deserve respect or, I don't know, it's hard for me to say, oh yeah, he's a scumbag, so just, you know, kick him in the head and pull his hair out. I don't know, I, that's just, a hard one for me. Yeah, just don't ever forget, because we've been over this, remember, these are people in a final state, so they're not on earth. I mean, you know, the people still... We're asked to hope, you know, and love enemies. But here's a final state. To pity this guy in one sense would be to go against God. To add punishments would be simply appropriate because they're, they're just approving of God's punishment, you know. Um, but isn't that God's job to punish and not a human's job? Yeah, I mean, yes, yeah, good. I, I, yeah, good, but... Yeah, what to say about that? I'm with Melody, Bob. I'm with Melody. You're asking us if pity is an appropriate response, and I think we've already learned that very early in the in the journey through hell. But this goes beyond a lack of pity. It goes, you know, it's a step beyond. It, well, I, I mean, a step beyond. But that, I mean, that's a sort of strange way to put it because pity means feeling. Pity means identifying with the suffering of somebody else and feeling sorry yourself because of that identification. For him to say to be mean to him was a generous reward, I think is an ironic way of saying he's one with God in... in sh he's not punishing him, he's being punished, you know, but, I mean, by the state he's in, but... To me, it's it it's interesting that Dante puts it that way because, in one sense, what it's doing is affirming God's punishment and standing with Him, not allowing um, an inappropriate motion to to dictate what He's going to do here. Um, remember, we we are at the center of hell. We're one step away from Satan at this point. Um, I think Dante, in his time, would have said. 
um, I, because I, and I, and I think it's harder for us because I think we're, a, we're much more tender as modern non-believers. I mean, generally speaking, um, we find it hard to take tough stands with people, you know, and, and it leads to problems. Um, it's a difficult situation because in Dante's hell, we're with final ends. We're not in the world. You know, these are, these are settled conditions. Um, I think what Dante's showing us here is that what he's doing is appropriate because it's standing with God in, 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 in I don't know, participating in the punishment, but, um, but not allowing a pity to in any way undermine what this guy has chosen for himself. Let me go to this because it gets, it gets to the heart of where we're going and I don't want to, I don't want to, I want to finish this up. After the Baca episode, um, before the the um, the Abarijo, Dante comes across this man who's eating on the head of another person. On um, page one seventy nine, the beginning of um, Canto thirty three, lining. Lifting his mouth from his horrendous meal, the sinner first wiped off his messy lips and the hair remaining on the chewed-up skull. We've been having all of these images of meals. Adam was bloated. Aboriginal betrayed people at a dinner. And here we've got Ugolino feasting on Rogerio's head. The Satan image is going to show a Satan eating on Brutus, Cassius, and... Um, Judas, okay? So we get the Ugolino story on 180. He says, um, Who are you? What, what are you doing? On 180, I do not know your name, nor do I know how you have come down here, but Florentine, you surely seem to be to hear you speak. First, you should know I was Count Ugolino. His neighbor was Ruggiero. Um, Ruggiero betrayed him. And his betrayal led to Ugolino being put in the tower with his children. I think they're actually his nephews. That I trusting in him was put in prison through his evil machinations where I died. This much I surely do not have to tell you. What you could not have known, however, is the inhuman circumstances of my death. And then he tells the story. Um, after some time in there, they bolted up the door and ceased to give them food. So Ugolino and his children starved one by one. 181, I'd, um, I'd watched moon after moon after moon go by when finally I dreamed the evil dream which ripped away the veil that hid my future. I dreamed of this one here as lord and huntsman pursuing the wolf and the wolf cubs in the mountains which blocks the sight of um, Luca from the Pisans with skinny bitches well trained and obedient. He had out front his leaders of the pack, these dogs, a short run, and the father with his son seemed to grow tired, and then I thought I saw long fangs sink deep into their sides, ripped open. When I awoke before the light of dawn, I heard my children sobbing in their sleep. You see, they too were there, asking for bread. So he has a dream of these animals eating others, and then he wakes up, they're all starving, and the kids ask for food. If the thought of what my heart was telling me does not fill you with grief, how cruel you are, 
If you're not weeping now, do you ever weep? And then they awoke. It was around the time they usually brought our food to us, but now each one of us was full of dread from dreaming. Then from below I heard them driving nails into the dreadful tower's door, and with that I stared in silence at my flesh and blood. I did not weep. I turned to stone inside. They wept. What is it, Father? Why do you look that way? They're, they're pale at seeing his response. For them I held my tears back, saying nothing, all that day and then all of that night until another sun shone on the world. A meager ray of sunlight found its way to the misery of our cell, and I could see myself reflected four times in their faces. I bit my hands in anguish, and my children, who thought that hunger made me bite my hands, were quick to draw up closer to me, saying, O oh, Father, you would make us suffer less if you would feed on us. You are the one who gave us this flesh. You take it from us. They're offering themselves as food because they think he's biting himself from hunger when it's grief at looking at them. I calm myself to make them less unhappy. That day we sat in silence. And the next day, O oh, pitiless earth, you could have swallowed us. The fourth day came, and it was on that day my Guido fell prostrate before my feet, crying, Why don't you help me? Why, my father? There he died. Just as you see me here, I saw the other three fall one by one as the fifth day and the sixth passed, and I, by then gone blind, groped over their dead bodies. Though they were dead two days, I called their names. Then hunger proved more powerful than grief. Now, a couple of questions here. What is, what's meant when he says, then hunger proved more powerful than grief? One translation has it, then hunger did more than grief. What's meant in that line? I take it that he ate his children. Yeah. Some because people... he turned to stone, you know, yeah. inside, and yeah. he... Yeah just lost it. So. Yeah. Some people think, interpret that as he died, that hunger finally, but I don't think so. I think he ate his kids. Okay, a couple of questions here, serious questions. Um, in the next scene, we're going to be shown Satan eating Judas, Brutus, and Cassius. Which is more horrible? The Ugolino scene or the Satan scene? Karen, what do you, I see you saying something I can't hear. What are you saying? I'm thinking how bad it would be to have eaten your own children. So that's saying that this scene's worse than the Satan scene? Well, yeah, it touches me more. <laughs> <laughs> Melody, you don't have any doubts? I would say yes. I agree with Karen. Go, go ahead, Dave, why? Well, Satan is an external to the family, you, and, and the former is the family eating itself. That's abomination. Yeah, yeah. So, Satan is an external to everybody that's there with him. Yeah. They brought themselves there. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I just, I just think the first is for, the former is the worst. Yeah. By the way, before, because I'd like to hear from the rest of you, just if, if you think about what we've been reading in the in the uh, Inferno, 
this is one of the scenes in which Dante gives the greatest attention. This scene is longer than almost any of the, the Diomedes scene, the Francisca scene. There are a few scenes that have this length, but this is this is one of the scenes in which Dante gives the greatest attention to what he's doing. He lengthens it, he, he goes into detail, it's a longer scene, it's an act of cannibalism, it's it's a horrible scene. So anybody else, which is which is worse and why? The Ugolina scene or the Satan scene? Any, I don't think that any anything that uh, Satan did would not surprise us in its cruelty. So that's not as uh, remarkable to us to see Satan committing such an act. Okay, then here's the next question. Why did Dante do this? Because I think all of you are right. And Dante's an artist. He knows exactly what he's doing. Why did he give so much dramatic attention to this scene? And let me put it this way. I'm, I'm going to say that this scene is the climax of the Inferno. That the Satan scene is anticlimactic. When we get there, it's almost nothing next to this. It's almost comic. It's silly. I mean, it's not. It's dreadful. But next to this, this is a horrible, horrible scene. Why does Dante do that? Why? He knows exactly what he's doing. We've seen that scene after scene. He he's so he's so brilliant. What's he doing? Why? Maria, where are you? Hi, I don't know. <laughs> Come on, what's your thought on this? Why does Dante do this? Would you agree that this is more horrible than the Satan scene? Yes. Why does Dante do this? Maybe to highlight like the lep like what humans can reach. Like it could be what the devil does like it, it could go really really bad <laughs> yeah anybody have anything to add to that yeah i i agree with maria the highlighting the human weakness well we go back to basics though that the family is supposed to be the building block of foundation of society i mean you're destroying the very foundation of society is the worst thing in the world. You believe in eating children. Yeah. Yep. And it also represents betraying the father, betraying. Wow. Good. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Wow. Yep. 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 Okay. If everybody's ag agreement, if I mean, I think if, if all that you've said to me goes right to the point. It's Dante's way of showing the importance of human responsibility. That that um, it's another way of highlighting how responsible we are for our actions. When we go bad, you know, we, you expect evil from Satan. He already made his commitment. Um, we have responsibility. It's a way of highlighting how the act of responsibility for us. I think that's why, the, I think that's why this is the climax of the inferno, this scene. If and all of you seem pretty much in agreement. I mean, you're all, I just think you're dead on, all of you. But if, if um, hell is the opposite of heaven, why would all of this be appropriate? All these images of feeding? Because we saw Adam bloated, 
Alberigio betrays his family by killing them at a dinner. Um, Ugolino is feasting on Ruggiero, and Satan is feasting on these three figures, all of whom betrayed their lords. Why does Dante end the inferno this way? Is that just an accident, or is it revealing of something? Melody, you got that sly looking, that mischievous smile on your, you ought to. No, but you're right. So he's, he is so smart because in heaven, we think of the heavenly banquet and, you know, everything will be there for us and it'll be beautiful and wonderful. And this is the antithesis of that. This is eating other humans and just hor the, the, the worst possible thing you could eat and enjoy. And okay. yeah, so. Yeah. I never thought of it that way, so thank you. Well, thank you. I mean, <laughs> um, the antithesis, I mean, just think about the Eucharist, I mean, the, the heavenly banquet, that, that in the Eucharist we have God offering himself infinitely, again and again and again, feeding people. The antithesis of that would be creatures, for their own sake, eating other people. And by the way, just go back to the Odyssey. Remember Odysseus in the cave when the, when the uh, Cyclops fed on them. And at the very end with that mill woman, remember when Odysseus was dreaming or sleeping the night before battle and he had that vision, that mill woman cried out, these, these suitors have been breaking down our knees. And I suggested that was to call to mind the Cyclops, that the suitors were images of the Cyclops eating up we use the term eating, like children eating their parents out of house and home, that sometimes people can become so inconsiderate of other people. They take them for granted, they use them, they, that there's a danger, all of us, um, in taking other people. For, in, in a sense, it's like eating them, devouring them. Um, and remember, Odysseus's quest came to an end with his companions when they ate the cattle of Helios. They were told not to eat that cattle. They did. So it's really interesting that eating has, has this myth. Here go, it goes to your question, Melody, that there's this mythic dimension to eating. We, we don't think anything about it. We sit down and have a meal and go to the store and buy food and eat. We can't live without it. At the very center of our life is this act of eating. We've got Christ offering himself to all of us. And here at the center of hell, we've got all these eating, these scenes involving eating that show just the opposite. So, um, so this is the end of it. Um, it. It brings us to the very opposite of what God has done for man. That's the nature of hell. And and you know to go back to some of the questions you guys have been raising, if you if you think that we have a human nature that what Dante is showing us is, is in some sense meant to remind us that the things that we do we carry into the next life. So what we're seeing is not a fantasy, it's not just a, it's like a doctor um, diagnosing a, an illness and offering a remedy, but what Dante is doing is exposing the illness, showing the spiritual effects of sin. 
when we enter purgatory now, we're going to go into a world in which everybody is a sinner. It's no different. The only difference is in purgatory, people want to repent. Um, they're contrite. They acknowledge their sins. Um, they are sorrow. They are sorry for the sins, and they are glad, glad to be picking up the burdens. That's the nature of purgatory. So let me stop. Any any last thoughts or comments on the inferno? Besides, you're glad to get out of it. <laughs> I just had one comment. It was so funny when uh, they were talking about Volca, and you know um, uh, Dante was trying to figure out who he was, and then the other the other person in hell um, mentioned his name, and then he asked him, "What what's the devil wrong with you?" <laughs> I mean, so they're, they're in hell, and he's like, "What's the devil wrong with you?" <laughs> I just thought that was so funny. It is good for you, Connie. Good for you. And then also, too, I didn't realize that was a teaching of the church, or um, it says according to church doctrine about um, your your soul being in hell and your body could possibly still be here on earth, you know, um, in the midst of the devil, the devil being inside your body. Right. Which would, explain, which would explain a lot of these people that commit these heinous crimes that is so unbelievable how... You know, that I can definitely yep. see. Yep, 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 right on. There's I, there's nothing in Dante that isn't orthodox. I mean, you really, mm -hmm. this is the center of the church in its understanding of human evil and, and you know, what its nature is. It's what's so extraordinary about it. Um, well, you bring into, bring into perspective, though, the... And I thought I looked on two ways just a moment ago. Now I think of three ways. You talk about consuming the body of Christ in the Holy Eucharist. If you do so in a godly way with no mortal sins on your soul, you're eating life. If you take it with, without with mortal sins on your soul, we're taught that you're eating your death. You're creating your own death by by that, and, it, and it's kind of, kind of likened to, in hell, they're eating the decadent, the de decaying bodies of, they're eating their own way to death. Yeah. But in the Eucharist, you, you have two ways of receiving the Eucharist, either in, to get life in the graces of God, or outside the graces of God, to bring death upon yourself. Yeah. To yeah. live your life outside of God or inside of God. Yeah, right. All right. And having God inside of you when you eat him. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. St. Paul is pretty clear. I mean, I, I, and, you know, it led to the, um, the donist, the donatist heresy, the, the, the position that some people took that if a priest were in sin, it made illegitimate the, or illicit the, reception of communion or sacraments. Um, the church has always held that it, you can't expect priests to be perfect because priests are in sin too. Um, and Paul is really clear about taking the body of Christ clear. It's in Corinthians where he talks about receiving the body. All people are in sin. I mean, you, you, you can't receive without being in sin. 
But being in sin and mortal sin are serious differences. If you receive communion um, and take it lightly, that, that, that can be a blasphemous act. Um, but taking communion and reverently understanding that it's the body and, and um, lots of priests in the church will say that the act of receiving Eucharist is an act of um, forgiveness that in itself it's also forgiving that God is offering his forgiveness there. So that when communicants, when any of us receives the body, um, we're receiving his forgiveness. If, if a person approaches that, that light, then he is taking life into himself. Um, he's helping to answer the sins in himself, to, you know, to put them away. And that's where we're going. I mean, the whole of the inferno was not meant to stop here. The inferno begins and stops with people who've chosen their world and refused anything else. They're refusing atonement. The action goes on. What we're, what we're about to enter now is a world in which people are still in sin. The difference is they're repentant. They're sorry. They want to do away with their sins. They're struggling to do that. And, and it, it, the image of the mountain is appropriate once again because it's a struggle. They're going up a mountain. And it takes a long time as for some people. One of the people, one of the most important people in purgatory is gonna, it's gonna turn out, he was in purgatory for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, I'll be glad to do that if I get to purgatory. I mean, I, whatever time it takes, I'll be glad you know, to be there. But Stasius, who is one of the great figures of the purgatory, is there for ages and ages and ages. Some people are there for a shorter time um, in that sense, Dante's being realistic. You know, each person has his own sins, his own burdens. But the point I want to make here is that action continues. It doesn't stop. Dante's moving forward. He's been helped to see his sins. Now he can go back to that mountain and begin to climb it. So that's where we'll go next week. So next week we'll start the Purgatorio, okay? And I, I just remind you of Suzanne's words to me when we are at UD and I entered the doctorate program and had not read any of this, the Iliad, the Odyssey, and I was a, you know, I took my degree in English at Berkeley and had never read any of this stuff, and, but it, it was required there. Anyway, I read it and, and I was so taken by it and asked Suzanne to read it and she read it and she, her first words were when she put the inferno down and began to read the purgatory was, it's so good to hope again. <laughs> <laughs> Most definitely. Okay, you guys all stay safe from this virus. Take care of yourselves. Um, if you would all keep each other in your prayers, all of us will do the same. So, you guys have a good week and enjoy, enjoy your freedom from hell and and enjoy <laughs> enjoy the purgatorio. Okay, you guys have a good week. Let's get the hell out of hell. Let's go. <laughs> Thank yes, you. yes, yes, Bye. yes, Bye, yes. Bye, guys. Bye. 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 Thank you. Is it still running? Yes, it looks like it. <laughs>